A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, The Spanish Armadas, Part 5 of 5. In the first four parts, I gave the background to the famous naval battle, the Spanish Armada of 1588, including the Dutch Revolt and the tensions between England and Spain. I recommend you listen to those first four parts before listening to this, but if you have already done so, or would like to continue anyway, then let's begin. Last week I described the failure of the Spanish Armada to invade England. A personal victory for Queen Elizabeth I of England. Yet instead of being the end, this was almost the beginning of what's known as the Anglo-Spanish War of 1585 to 1604, which included four more armadas or attempted invasions by the Spanish of England. At first, the defeat of the Spanish seemed to create a window of opportunity for Elizabeth to exploit, while Philip II was forced to rebuild his navy. Elizabeth's council voted to dispatch a fleet to destroy the Armada's surviving ships in the Spanish ports where they were being repaired, but it soon became clear that the Armada campaign had taken its toll on the English fleet, which also needed some time to recover. Instead of sending her navy as she would have liked, she allowed a consortium of adventurers, including Sir Francis Drake, to take some of her warships, along with her own private fleet, plus some Dutch transports, on the understanding that they would try and destroy the rest of the Spanish fleet before moving on to take any plunder. Drake took it upon himself to complicate the expedition by taking with him Dom Antonio, a claimant to the Portuguese throne, to help him try to gain power in Portugal. In the end, by trying to do too much, the expedition achieved virtually nothing. Instead of sailing to where the Spanish ships were mooring, Drake besieged Lisbon, but never got close to taking the city. So the fleet moved on to the Azores, in the hope of intercepting a treasure ship returning from the Americas. But they were unfortunate, for southerly gales dispersed the fleet and drove them back to the coast of England. £100,000 had been spent and about 6,000 lives lost for nothing, and Elizabeth was furious that her orders had not been followed. 
Drake was disgraced and received no further naval command until his final voyage in 1595. Meanwhile, Philip was able to go ahead with his plans for the rebuilding of his navy. In 1591, the new Spanish ships gained their first success when they caught an English fleet near the Azores and managed to capture a ship called the Revenge. Another success was Philip's adjustment to the convoys, which brought silver across from the Americas. He started using smaller, faster ships than before, which were more difficult to intercept by pirates. After the loss of the revenge and the obvious resurgence of Spanish naval power, the threat of invasion of England was renewed. Elizabeth left the hunt for transatlantic treasure ships to privateers and kept her royal fleet close to home. The Dutch revolt continued into the 1590s and remained a source of tension between Spain and England. But an incident in France in 1589 escalated matters even further. On the 2nd of August of that year, the French king, Henry III, was assassinated, prompting a new stage in the French Wars of Religion. The accession of the most obvious successor, Henry of Navarre, was considered unthinkable by many of the Catholic French, for Henry was a Protestant. The Catholic League, led by the Guise family, controlled Paris and other parts of the country, and with the support of King Philip of Spain, put forward their own candidate for the throne. For Queen Elizabeth, these events raised the frightening prospect of the pro-Spanish League taking control of France and supporting a new armada against her country. She was compelled to support Henry of Navarre, the future Henry IV, as a fellow president, for which she would have to raise extra men and money in addition to those already being spent in the Netherlands. No end to the fighting seemed in sight, while for Elizabeth threats and commitments mounted up on all sides. To prevent Henry of Navarre from capturing Paris, Philip ordered the Duke of Parma to divert some of his forces from Dutch territories into France. Henry was pushed back, at least for the time being, but at a cost. Up until then, Parma had been making good progress subjugating the Dutch. It only seemed to be a matter of time until he put an end to the rebellion. By diverting forces against Henry, Philip unwittingly saved the Dutch Republic by allowing the rebels to gain the upper hand once more. Furthermore, Henry eventually triumphed against Philip and the Guise family. In July 1593, he renounced Protestantism and converted to Roman Catholicism, and so secured the allegiance of the vast majority of his subjects, and in the next year was crowned as King Henry IV of France. Philip of Spain and the more hardline Catholics refused to accept Henry as the rightful King of France, and still held the regions of Brittany, Picardy and parts of Normandy. In April 1596, Spanish troops won a significant victory when they captured Calais. This was of particular concern to Elizabeth, who feared the port could be used as a launch pad for a new armada. 
diplomatic relations with Henry IV of France and the Dutch were intensified, leading to the signing of the Triple Alliance between England, France and the Netherlands later in the year. The conflict worsened when in August a Spanish force on patrol from Brittany landed at and raided Cornwall, burning Penzance and several nearby villages. And in the same summer of 1596, an Anglo-Dutch expedition under Elizabeth's young favourite, the Earl of Essex, sacked the port of Cadiz. He caused significant loss to the Spanish fleet and left the city in ruins, delaying a planned attack on England. The only setback for the English was that they were unable to capture their treasure ships because the Spanish commander had time to torch them in port and send them to the bottom of the harbour. Nevertheless, the sack of Cadiz was celebrated as a national triumph in England. Philip was already well underway for plans for Second Armada. Although the attack on Cadiz was a setback, it did not prevent the next invasion attempt from going ahead. This time part of the plan was to provide assistance to the Irish rebels, who at that time were in rebellion against the English crown. As a very brief background, although Ireland was officially under Elizabeth's rule, the Irish population, who were predominantly Catholic, were often more than ready to defy her authority and plot with her enemies. Philip's strategy was therefore to open a new front in the war in Ireland, forcing English troops away from France and the Netherlands. Philip by now was approaching 70 and increasingly ill. He was so stricken by gout and arthritis that he was almost immobile, and a valet had to message his legs and feet in bed for up to an hour each morning. Determined to avenge the failure of the Armada, he acted impulsively for one of the few occasions in his life. Preparations for a second Armada were delayed so that it was only by mid-October when the fleet was finally ready. It was far too late in the season to campaign, so the planned expedition to Ireland was postponed. However, Philip insisted that the fleet set sail with the goal of capturing the port of Brest in Brittany in the far northwest of France. This city would then become an excellent base from which to invade England or to assist the Irish rebels. But on the night of 17th of October, the Second Armada was severely battered by a thunderstorm, losing 32 large vessels and many smaller craft. The surviving ships could do no more than limp back to northern Spain. For Philip, the expedition was not just a military setback, but a disaster financially, forcing him to declare the third major bankruptcy of his reign. Philip's fleet was badly damaged, but not destroyed. He refused to give up on attacking England and ordered the repair of his ships at the port of Ferrol in northern Spain. News of the Spanish preparations again prompted Elizabeth's court to send a preemptive strike. 
a major force was put together at great expense under the command of the Earl of Essex, with the aim of destroying the Spanish naval forces and to remove the threat of invasion once and for all. However, despite the great expenditure, the expedition soon went awry. When the fleet sailed in July, heavy storms quickly forced most of the fleet back. When the fleet sailed again in August, more rough weather scattered the ships, ending all hopes of attacking the enemy fleet in port. For a while, Essex forces patrolled the Spanish coast, seeking to blockade Ferron. Eventually, the decision was taken to travel to the Azores, in the hope of catching a treasure ship. The English were unfortunate just to miss the convoy on its way from the Indies. Another misfortune was that the diversion to the Azores allowed the Spanish the chance to renew their plans for the Third Armada. Philip instructed his admiral to sail for England and to seize the Cornish port of Falmouth as a base of operations against the returning English fleet. Comprising 136 ships, 9,000 troops and 4,000 sailors, the new expedition set off in early October. The English were caught completely unawares because they believed that Essex's fleet had bottled the enemy up in Spain and so had prepared hardly any defence. Essex had taken half the Queen's major warships with him while others had already been berthed for the winter to save crusts, leaving only a small force to protect the English Channel. Fortunately for the English, just as the Spanish were about to reach Falmouth, they were scattered by a sudden, powerful, north-easterly gale, which arrived at the last minute. And so this time it was bad weather, not the military, which saved England from a potentially devastating attack. Years of warfare had proved very costly for both Spain and England. Also there had been intense conflict between the Spanish and French, over the last years to fight for the rights of succession to the French crown. By 1598, Henry IV was pretty much secure on the throne, and Philip was coming to realise that he simply didn't have the resources to continue the fight. The two leaders decided to make peace and sign the Treaty of Vivane in April of that year. Debate raged in the English court as to whether they should seek a similar peace with Spain, but instead concerns that the Spanish would turn their attention on the Netherlands prompted the English and Dutch to sign their own agreement for mutual cooperation later the same year. The Dutch agreed to repay the Queen by large instalments, all the money loaned them. Also, if Elizabeth wished to send another expedition against Spain, then the Dutch promised to contribute an equal amount of ships and men. This was a striking proclamation of the growth of Dutch power, which in the next century was to make Holland one of the most prosperous countries in the world and was to see the founding of the Dutch East India Company. A significant moment for the rise of Dutch maritime and commercial power occurred in 1600, when a flotilla of Dutch merchant ships succeeded in sailing to the East Indies around the Cape of Good Hope, 
and in so doing defied Portuguese claims to exclusive rights to navigation in the region. In September 1598, Philip II of Spain became gravely ill. He was now in his seventies, and had been in increasingly poor health for some years. In his last days, his religious fervour reached new heights. He studied passages from the Bible and listened to a succession of preachers, and also had crucifixes and relics surrounding his bed and on all the walls. Bedridden and unable to move or to bear being touched because of sores all over his emaciated body, he finally passed away on the night of the 12th of September. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Philip's legacy was complex. As Winston Graham puts it, quote, To the Protestant world, he was a monster of evil, cold-blooded, vengeful, cruel, a symbol of the Inquisition, and the iron hand of oppression. End quote. Nevertheless, in Spain he was well-respected and held in warm affection by his subjects. He represented their golden age, when their country moved from the periphery of Europe to become the centre of a worldwide empire. His greatest battlefield accomplishment was the defeat of the Ottoman fleet at Lepanto, which turned the tide against Turkish aggression. Another significant achievement was the acquisition of the Portuguese crown, and he gave his name to the Philippine Islands, which the Spanish came to rule, during his reign. His greatest military failures were against the northern Protestants, the failed armadas against England and losing control of the northern half of the Low Countries. On the religious front, Philip strove hard to enforce Catholic orthodoxy through an intensification of the Inquisition. Students were barred from studying outside Spain, and even a highly respected churchman, like Archbishop of Carenza of Toledo, was jailed by the Inquisition for 17 years, for publishing ideas that seemed sympathetic, in some degree, with Protestantism. Spain therefore avoided the religiously inspired strife tearing apart other European dominions, 
although at the cost of closing itself off, to some of the intellectual ideas flourishing in Europe in the period. Yet ideas and culture did still flourish. The squad of Salamanca in western Spain flourished under his reign, where among its famous intellectuals was Francisco Suarez, generally regarded as the greatest scholastic philosopher after Thomas Aquinas. In his palace, El Escorial, Philip assembled one of the finest libraries and one of the greatest art collections in the world. Under him, poetry, literature, music, and in particular painting, flourished. In addition, he rebuilt the city of Madrid, formerly an old fortified town, and converted it into his new capital city, and today it still remains the capital of Spain. The Anglo-Spanish War did not end with Philip's death, but was already on the wane, and began to peter out gradually under the reign of Philip II's son and successor, Philip III. The main focus of conflict turned to Ireland, where Elizabeth was struggling to assert her authority, a situation exploited by the Spanish. A fourth Spanish armada was intended for the British Isles, but became diverted to attack a Dutch fleet in the Azores, and a fifth armada arrived in Ireland, but achieved no lasting success. At the end of 1601, a final armada was sent north, this time a limited expedition intended to land troops in southern Ireland to assist the rebels. The Spanish entered the town of Kinsale, with 3,000 troops, and were immediately besieged by the English. In time, their Irish allies arrived to surround the besieging force, but poor coordination between the Irish and the Spanish led to an English victory at the Siege of Kinsale in January 1602. It was a serious blow for the Spanish, who had intended to set up a base in Ireland from which to harry English shipping. But realising that this was going to be increasingly difficult to achieve, they agreed to accept terms of surrender and to return home. The Spanish were never to be a serious threat to England again. At about the same time as the campaign in Ireland, the Spanish suffered a major defeat trying to capture Algiers in North Africa. The peace with France was also uneasy, with French attacks on Savoy threatening the integrity of the Spanish road, that is, the land connection from Spain to her possessions in the Low Countries. Although large quantities of silver still flowed from the Indies, Spain's military commitments took up all its money and more, and the country was forced into a massive debasement of its copper currency in 1602. The next year, in March 1603, Elizabeth I made her last act as Queen by agreeing to a peace in Ireland. The main rebel leader, Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone and his allies were treated relatively generously, considering the cost to the English of their rebellion, and they were regranted their titles and most of their lands. But the agreement effectively meant the loss of independence for Ireland, 
and a taking over of political control by the English for centuries to come. The Queen's health had remained remarkably good, considering her age, until the autumn of 1602, when a series of deaths among her friends plunged her into a severe depression. Elizabeth fell sick in mid-March 1603, and sat motionless on a cushion for hours on end. She died on the 24th of March 1603 at Richmond Palace, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. The English council wasted no time in proclaiming her successor as monarch, the son of Mary Queen of Scots, James, who was crowned King James I of England. James I had little desire to continue the war with Spain and in 1604 signed the Treaty of London with Philip III of Spain. The English agreed to end their interference in the Low Countries, although, as it turned out, the Dutch were by now strong enough to fend for themselves. Five years later, in 1609, the Spanish and Dutch signed the so-called Twelve Years' Truce. Conflict would later be sparked again between the two sides, but it proved to be an important moment, for it came to mark the point from which the independence of the United Provinces received formal recognition by outside powers. It had been a turbulent couple of decades, after which the balance of power in Western Europe had broadly remained the same. Though as for overall trends, the Dutch were on their way to independence and rapidly growing in economic strength. The English were now more self-confident and beginning to establish themselves as a great naval power. The Kingdom of Spain, on the other hand, had reached its apogee, and in the years to come would go into gradual decline. It is well worth considering how things might easily have turned out differently, had events gone another way. For example, had Elizabeth's elder sister, Mary Tudor, not died young, there is a realistic chance that England would have remained loyal to the Catholic faith. Or had she and Philip had an heir than perhaps England, and the Netherlands could have been merged into a viable, long-term state. Or consider if the First Spanish Armada had been better organised and more successful, then perhaps Philip would have been able to force Elizabeth to abandon the Dutch and then to reassert his authority over the Low Countries. Instead, the failure of the Armada gave confidence to the English, the Dutch and also Henry IV of France. It helped to silence those voices in a Dutch Republic which favoured a compromised peace and confirmed Spain's inability to impose her will in the North Sea. Looking back at Elizabeth's legacy, over her long reign she had proved her male distractors wrong by showing that a woman was able to rule England capably and was able to impose her will on her court and on her people. Her two main goals when she became queen was firstly the settlement of the religious question and secondly to keep her realm at peace. On the first she succeeded, having left England more or less unified under the Protestant faith. As for the second, as we have seen, matters of international conflict were much less in her own hands. 
in the 1570s, she had been successful in discreetly supporting the French and Dutch Protestant rebels and keeping Philip too preoccupied to pose a threat to her own kingdom. But in the early 1580s, events got out of hand, leading to the drift to war in 1585. In these years, Elizabeth's deficiencies as a ruler became apparent, above all her reluctance to make decisions and her habit of changing her mind frequently. The fate of the Spanish Armada of 1585, the event for which Elizabeth is most famous, was determined less by the Queen than by the skills of her seamen. The ineptitude of the Spanish strategy and the capricious weather of the Atlantic and North Sea. Furthermore, in the full assessment of Elizabeth, it should not be forgotten how poorly she treated her common soldiers who fought against the Armada. They were left to starve as they tried to find their way home, which is in stark contrast to Philip, who paid in full his soldiers. Yet when summing up Elizabeth's legacy, her long reign is looked back on as a successful one. She succeeded in the re-establishment of a balance of power on the continent, which would hold in check the expansionist ambitions of either France or Spain, and helped allow the Dutch to maintain their own independence. The end of a long era of foreign threats and decades of peace which followed in the 17th century were ascribed to her leadership, the weary years of unsuccessful campaigns forgotten. Already in the 1620s, there was a nostalgic revival of the court of Elizabeth. She was praised as a heroine of the Protestant cause and the ruler of a golden age, in comparison with James I, who is depicted as a Catholic sympathiser, presiding over a corrupt court. Her memory was also revived during the Napoleonic Wars, when a nation again found itself on the brink of invasion. The picture of Elizabeth, painted by her Protestant admirers of the early 17th century, has proved lasting and influential until today. The author, Wallace McCaffrey, sums it up well in his biography of Elizabeth, when he writes that what came down to posterity was not the memory of a vacillating ruler, whose indecision hamstrung her commander's best efforts, and whose frugality starved them of the necessary resources. It was Gloriana, the beneficent and gracious queen of the annual progresses, the heroic leader of her people speaking to her soldiers at Tilbury. Above all, Elizabeth is remembered as a symbol for national resistance to foreign threat, and also for helping to establish two of the pillars of England's glory days to come, Protestantism and naval power. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. When I'm back, I'll be returning to the southeast of the continent and catching up with the Ottomans and also introducing a new group of people called the Cossacks, finding out what's going in Muscovy and Poland, Lithuania. Your feedback is always welcome on the Facebook page or write to me directly. Carl at historyeurope.net 
And thanks to everybody who's put a review on the podcast on iTunes. Until next time, all the best and goodbye.